Thank you so much for getting us up on a nice hymn like that. There's a reason, not only that we have something to rejoice in, but it helps us to wake up and to enjoy the things that we have before us once again this afternoon. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 45. And as you find your place in Psalm 45, you'll notice that we are still in the royal wedding psalm. I'd like to read the first eight verses, but we are looking specifically at verse number eight for this meeting because we're still on the great theme of looking at our heavenly bridegroom. And as we look at him one more time this afternoon, tomorrow we'll be looking at the bride, the church. But this afternoon, Psalm 45, verse 1. It says, reading in the New King James translation, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, the people's fall under you. Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Now, verse 8, all your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. And we trust that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of this portion of his word. Let's pray once more together. Our Father, we thank and praise you for our wonderful Savior, our bridegroom of our hearts. And we pray that as we look at him once again this afternoon, that we might see his glories and be drawn to him to love him more, because he first loved us, we pray in his matchless name, amen. Well, now we have looked at a few things about our heavenly bridegroom. We considered his worth and his words, the worship that he rightly deserves, even his warfare to win us to himself. As I said, he's not waging war today, he's waging peace, peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ and his throne. We come now to the portion in verse 8 that deals with his wardrobe. Now, I mentioned having the privilege of conducting some wedding ceremonies and the ministry that the Lord's given, and every time I always try to, to pick out the darkest or black or dark gray suit and a very mild tie just so I don't stand out very much, but I usually will say to Nancy, how do I look? And she knows how to answer that. She says, doesn't matter. She said, at the wedding, nobody's going to be looking at you. So I keep a stiff, <laughs> stiff upper lip and, uh, and go and perform the wedding ceremony. But, you know, I know it's true. In fact, they're not looking too much at the bridegroom for our weddings or the best man, unless they know them personally. But all eyes and attention are watching for the bride. And even when the cue comes 
that the doors close and the music changes and the mother of the bride stands up and we all stand and everybody's looking to the back to where the entrance begins of the bride and all the eyes are upon her. This royal wedding is different altogether. No one is thinking, what is the bride wearing? But we're looking at what the bridegroom wears as he says in verse 8, all your garments. And so we're specifically looking at the wardrobe of our heavenly bridegroom. Now, you know that everything in your closet has a different purpose. I have a few things in my closet remind me that I'm not as thin as I used to be. All right, and they're a reminder. I, I leave them hanging there. They've only been there for about 17 years now. <laughs> that one day we might fit back into them. Everything has a different purpose in the closet, doesn't it? There are some things for work. There are some things for play, some things for uh, very important occasions and so on. Well, you think of the wardrobe of the Savior, rich, the offices he fills. And in every different aspect of his person and of his work, we see a different set or outfit or garments that he wears. And so I'd like to take some time. We're going to look, first of all, at his garments. And as we look at all his garments, well, I count, I count seven different garments that he wears in his ministry. Now, of course, as God exists now, you remember very well, as the psalmist said in Psalm 104, I'll quote it for you. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty who cover yourself with light as with a garment. Paul writing to Timothy, he reminds us that God dwells in unapproachable light. No one has seen God at any time. The only way we've seen the Lord is in the person of Christ who came, though he was the word that was with the Father through whom all things were created, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us that we could behold his glory, but veiled in flesh. So we could see God and see what he's like, but not see God in his true essence, dwelling in light that no one can approach. So what would he wear coming into this world, taking on a body of flesh. Well, the very first, shall I call it outfit or garments he wears of all things, are the swaddling cloths of a little baby. I'm going to keep you awake, I mean busy, <laughs> by turning in the scripture. That's one of the best ways I know. So let's turn to the gospel of Luke, please. And in Luke's gospel, you know, we're not surprised at all that when it comes to the uh, infanthood or babyhood of the Lord Jesus, that it would be Dr. Luke. I don't know if he was a pediatrician or not, but Dr. Luke would tell us about his babyhood and how he was born and how he was cared for. But in Luke's gospel, chapter 2, starting in verse 8 and going right through 14, we read the most familiar story that we have in Luke's unique gospel. Aren't you glad that all the gospels are written so that we get a different view of Christ in different ways? I stopped at the grocery store a little while back, right in our little hometown, and we uh, live in a, a community that has Wycliffe Bible translators located there with about 500 volunteers, so a lot of their kids work at the grocery store. 
And so when I was checking out, I looked at the young man's badge, and uh, his name was Mark. I said, well, that's a good Bible name. He said, yeah, my mom and dad are Christians, and they named, they named me Mark. I'm a Christian too. And so I got through the line, and I remembered something I had forgotten on my list, but I missed it. And I went back and got it, and I came to Mark's line, and it was full. So I went over to the next line beside him, and it was Matthew. I said, your name's Matthew, and this is Mark? And they said, yeah, that's right. And uh, they said, look back behind us. And a guy raised his hand. He says, I'm Luke. <laughs> I looked back at the other cashier, and it was a young lady. She said, I am not John. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, we have a good view, don't we, when we look at the Savior in different aspects of his life and his ministry. Here's Luke giving something that none of the others give. And it's about his babyhood and what he wore. You'll see in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Now, this is going to take you back a few months to Christmas time. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now note this, please, in verse 12. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now I just want to mention, the angel said... The fact that the baby would be wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger, would be a sign. Now, what does a sign do? A sign points ahead to something. It's not just that this would be the sign so that you know this is the baby, but rather the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger, he and that situation would be the sign. A sign points to something yet to come. You're driving through some of the areas that are good for agriculture and, and stops along the way to buy some nice fresh, ve fresh vegetables or fruit, you'll see a sign and it'll say a vegetable produce stand 1,000 feet ahead. And then you'll see another sign, the produce stand 500 feet ahead. And then you'll see the next sign, turn here for the produce stand. And then one more sign, you just pass the produce stand, turn around. So the sign is telling you something's ahead, something's ahead. And here when the angel said, this is the sign, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, laid in a manger. Now in your mind, if you're thinking of your Christmas downtown manger scene or stable, you're thinking of a wood structure with some hay and the cattle around and maybe a camel and a, you know, this kind of setting. But that's not the setting of our Savior's birth. The setting of our Savior's birth was more likely in a cave. And in the manger, hewn out of the side of that cave, even up in the Galilee, they find mangers that are hewn out of stone and standing on their own. And so get this picture, if you will. This baby, wrapped in strips of cloth called swaddle, and laid in a stone-hewn manger. Only Luke records this, and only Luke records in Luke chapter 23, verse 53, that when the Lord Jesus died, he was wrapped 
in strips of cloth, linen. And he was laid in a tomb hewn out of stone. The very fulfillment of this sign as a little babe wrapped in swaddle. It is amazing, isn't it, that the Savior, the eternal Son of God, stepping out of eternity onto an island of time, and for this little space would be as a little baby wrapped up in swaddle, held in his mother's arms, and yet in his hand he holds all of creation, and in him all things hold together or consist. What a Savior we have. What great condescension to think this is our Savior here wrapped in his first outfit or garments and it's swaddle. And that's the humility and the wonderful grace that we've been singing about. And so he says in verse 13, when this announcement had been made, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men are with whom God is pleased. It's wonderful just to consider it. Our Savior willing to become a man and taking that great step to become a man continued on his downward trend all the way to the cross and to the tomb. But we see his next outfit or garments that are mentioned to us in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Now, of course, as you turn to Matthew chapter 9, we not only see the Lord Jesus as a little baby wrapped in swaddle, but in Matthew chapter 9, we see him in his ministry, which started at the approximate age of about 30. You may remember that back in the instructions given to the children of Israel, all the way back in the book of Numbers, and by the way, we're just finishing up our Bible reading this year in the book of Numbers. If you've made it through Numbers, you're doing well. Don't give up. Keep on reading. But Numbers usually brings a lot of people to a slowdown and pause and maybe even give up on reading through the Scriptures in the year. But you've got to get through all the names and through all the Numbers. Numbers is an exciting book, I'll tell you that. Because it's not just a listing of numbers that you have to count up how many people were in the children of Israel. It's not counting the number, but it's learning to count on the Lord. And over and over, he shows himself strong on their behalf, and he gives important instructions in the book of Numbers. The fact that the Israelites were to put a blue thread in the corner of the tassel of their garments, and it would be there, just this blue hem or blue thread, as a reminder of the covenant or the promises of God. They're heavenly, aren't they? I thought the sky was Carolina blue, but I want to tell you, it's actually heavenly blue. And as you look up into the sky and you see the beautiful color and you look to the hem of the garment of an Israelite, that blue reminds us that God is good to his word and his promises are sure. Not only that, but it was a reminder of the covenant and the commandments of the Lord and the comfort we draw that God's promises are all yea and amen. So in the Gospel of Matthew, obviously this woman, she knew what that hymn of blue represented. And it says in Matthew chapter 9, can I just remind you of the setting in the uh, preceding verses that the Lord Jesus thronged by the crowds, was requested by Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, to come and heal his daughter who was 12 years of age and was very close to death. But we read in verse 20, Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, there was an interruption. 
And it says, and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. Now we don't know much about the rest of his garment, but we know about that hem. Obviously, the hem of blue, reminding us of God's comfort, God's covenant, and God's commandments. She said to herself in verse 21, we read, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Just think of it. A little girl, 12 years of age, living for 12 years, is dying. And this woman, who had been dying for 12 years, made alive just by touching the hem of his garment. We see the Lord Jesus typified through his life, walking through this world as not only the helper and friend, but also the healer. I love it when we not only read of specific times where he touched someone and healed them, but here's my best and my favorite line that ends all of those stories. And Jesus healed them all. No one, no one could ever love like he did and to care and have such sympathy for those who were suffering. And he reached out and touched and healed. But this woman, she reached out and touched the hem of his garment. I'm glad our Savior cared enough to wear a garment that could be touched. That's how close he came and how well he loved and cared. Not only do we see him as the healer, as well as the baby wrapped in swaddle and the healer with a hem or a garment with a hem of blue in his garment. But turn to the Gospel of John this time, to John chapter 13. Now I told you we have a few Gospel accounts and each one of them give us a different story or else a different view on the same story. But in John we have the unique setting that John gives of the Savior coming as the servant. Now there's no doubt all the other gospels mentioned his character as being a servant. He says in the gospel of Luke, I am among you as one who serves. He says in the gospel of Mark, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But in John's gospel, chapter 13, you have the story as it unfolds. And it's when the Lord Jesus met with his own in the upper room to have the Passover with his disciples before he would go to the cross and then back to the Father. And he did something, well, that you would have never expected. You know, compared to all the rulers and the kings in this world, there, would, there are none that stoop and become a servant like the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see in John chapter 13, if you'll start reading with me, please, in verse 1, it says, in John 13, 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, verse 4 says, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments. 
Perhaps it was that garment with a hem of blue. And then we read in verse 4, he took a towel and he girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he himself was girded. It's quite a picture, isn't it? It was the job of the lowly servant to wash the feet of the guest. Now, you might be wondering, I wonder why they didn't just hire someone to do that. Well, you'd have to ask Peter and John because their job was go prepare the chamber for the guest. But they must have forgotten to arrange a servant. You would think if they are the ones that forgot and they were the ones to prepare, one of them should have gotten up and washed the disciples' feet. But they were busily engaged in a little conversation. No, I'm sorry, a discussion. No, I'm sorry, a debate. No, it was an argument. In fact, that's exactly what we're told. They were having an argument, are you ready for this, over which one was the greatest among them. Hmm? Andrew said, I came to him first. Simon, I told you about him. Yeah, but Simon said, I'm the spokesman of the group. I'm not going to wash anybody's feet. And then Bartholomew said, well, it's not going to be me. I got the longest name of everybody. And I don't know what kind of discussion was happening, but nobody was making a move to wash the disciples' feet. And I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop when the Savior got up and laid aside his garment and took that towel and he clothed himself with the towel of a servant. When he began to wash their feet, he came to Simon Peter and Simon Peter said, Dost thou wash my feet? Now he wasn't really asking a question. He was making a statement. In fact, he reiterated it. You will never wash my feet. But the Savior, he knew just how to touch Simon's heart, didn't he? If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, he said, well, not just my feet. Wash my hands and my head. Give me a whole bath. No, that's not the purpose, was it? The Lord Jesus said, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. What does he mean there? Start a foot washing before the Lord's Supper? No. Serve one another. If I, your master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And serve the way he did. Let me just ask you, do you have a towel? Do you know what it means to serve? Well, I know you do because we see it even right here. And those who are doing so much to make us comfortable and enjoy a nice day like this, you know what the servant's towel works for and how it fits. But it's important, isn't it? If you know these things by example in his life, happier you if you do them. But our Savior, he came down not just to be made of no reputation and not just to be a servant, but in the Gospel of John, just turn a few pages over to 19. John chapter 19, we see the Savior now not as a baby with swaddle and a healer with a robe that had a hymn to it and a servant with a towel, but a Savior who was clothed with a purple robe. You remember the events leading up to Calvary, don't you? How they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane that night he washed the disciples' feet. They took him across the brook called the Kidron up to the house of Caiaphas, Annas, and then Caiaphas. And from there, from a mock trial that was illegal at night, to meeting early in the morning for a council, they brought him to Pilate. 
He stood before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod because he was of the Galilee. And Herod arrayed him in a gorgeous purple robe. And now we see him before Pilate again and in that robe. John's Gospel, chapter 19, captures it and expresses it this way. John 19, 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Our brother Brian mentioned to us the pain of scourging. He never deserved that, did he? And yet he took it for us. And here we see in verse 2, And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. It represents something to us, doesn't it? In fact, the crown of thorns reminds us that he was made a curse for us. For the curse from the garden would be the thorns and thistles the yield world would yield. And he bore that cross for us. And the purple robe reminds us, doesn't it? Like scarlet, all our sins are like scarlet. And he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And Pilate, of all people, gave the most succinct, eloquent message given by any unbeliever in the Bible. The end of verse 5, just three words, Behold the man. And we look at him with a robe of purple and a crown of thorns standing there, mocked, ridiculed, scorned, scourged, disowned, and rejected. And we see our Savior there willing not just to wear a purple robe in mockery, but to be made sin for us and to bear as well as to wear, to bear our sins in his own body all the way to Calvary. The hymn writer captures it well by saying, Sinners in derision crowned him, mocking thus the Savior's claim. Saints and angels crowd around him, own his title and praise his name. This is our Savior who willingly wore this garment for us as the king rejected and scorned. Not only do we see our Savior suffering in such a way, but even on the cross, still in the Gospel of John chapter 19, we read these verses that touch our hearts. Verses 23 and 24 tell us that when the Savior was being crucified on the cross, John 19, 23, we read, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic or the vesture. It goes on to tell us in verse 23 that the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. It really is quite a picture of the Savior, isn't it? Woven from the top, he came from heaven. In a seamless life, there was no spot, no blemish, Everything about him was absolute perfection. And we see the Savior in this seamless tunic, and there they are dividing his garments, but for the vesture they would not divide it. In fact, it says in verse 24, They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says, now just remind you, they were not doing it in order to fulfill the Scripture, but they did it, and the Scripture, through what they did, was fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, that's that tunic, 
or vesture, they cast lots. Perfectly fulfilling everything God told us to look for in the Savior, and he, wearing these garments, fulfilled them perfectly. The sinless, spotless Son of God, think of it this way, no fault, no sin, innocent blood, truly this must be the Son of God, thy beauty plain for all to see, and even thine enemies agree. Those who hated him without a cause could not even speak anything against him that had any founding or proof. He was above all reproach, though he bore our reproach, the perfect man, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he wore that tunic seamlessly woven. But you'll notice in the Gospel of John still, chapter 20. Don't you love the Gospel of John? It really is the presentation of the Son of God to all the world. No wonder we Gentiles enjoy what the Savior, how he's presented in the Gospel of John, and all the world does. So in John's Gospel, we see him as the risen Savior, and his garments are changed one more time. In fact, John chapter 20, you'll notice verses 5 through 7, the clothing that he wears comes from uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when they come and prepare his body for that burial. But on the resurrection morning, that first Sunday morning, we see Peter and John coming to the tomb. And in John chapter 20, verse 5, we read, speaking of John, and he, stooping down and looking in, he saw the linen cloths lying there Yet he did not go in. Verse 6 says, Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. And verse 7, And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Whatever did it mean? Well, I'll tell you what it meant. It meant the Savior who had died for the sins of the world had truly been buried in the tomb, and on the third day, he's risen from the dead. He's not in the tomb. Years ago, we were there at the garden tomb in Jerusalem, and it was a busy day. A lot of tour groups going through, and we were all standing in line, kind of like out here for the barbecue. It was just snaking around the old area. And, well, some of the other groups, they were getting a little impatient. And they wondered, after all of the things they had seen, is it really worth waiting in line? One group, I think they had over 150 people in the group. I like the small groups. But they had the beginning of the group was already going into the tomb to look inside the garden tomb. And all the way to the end, one friend called to another, What's inside? His friend looked out the little door and he said, Nothing! And all of us, it hit us all at the same time. Think of it. He's not there. There's no place to commemorate as the place where the body of Jesus still is. He's risen again. The clothing, those strips of linen that they saw, they were proof. Here's the way that Paul writes it in the book of Romans. He was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. 
We have a risen Savior who's in the world today, and we know that he ever lives. And he left his grave clothes right behind to prove he's the risen Lord. He doesn't need them anymore. Lastly, in the book of Revelation, please look, if you will. And this is lastly in his garments. We still have a couple of more things to say. Just don't want to get you ready to pack up your Bible and be ready to leave yet. In the book of Revelation, he wears more garments that are unique that we just have to see making a seven-piece or seven-garment clothing that presents our Savior in a way of perfection. And in Revelation chapter 1, I would like you to see the Savior and how he's clothed in Revelation 1 verse 13. Revelation 1.13 describes him this way, saying, And in the midst, you know, that's his favorite place, isn't it? In the midst. The upper room, after his resurrection, he's in the midst. I mentioned earlier today in the book of Hebrews, where does he lead the whole congregation in praise to God? From the midst. Where does he meet with us now whenever we meet in his name? He's here in our midst. And in glory we see, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, that's representing of the church, one like the Son of Man clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Oh, what a sight it must be. Now it has not yet appeared what we shall be because we haven't seen him as he is. But when we see him, we're going to be like him. For what reason? We'll see him as he is. And what will he be wearing there? We'll just have to wait and see. Revelation 19, if you'll turn there, please, gives us a bit of a clue by saying, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, Revelation 19, verse 13, this is what it says. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And down, please, to verse 16. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. These are the garments of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As a baby wrapped in swaddle, as a healer with a robe that had a hem of blue, as a servant who girt himself with a towel, and as the Savior who wore a purple robe and a crown of thorns, the perfect man with a tunic that was seamless, and the risen Lord with grave clothes left behind, the coming king of kings clothed with a glorious outfit. These are the garments of our wonderful Savior. And all his garments, as you go back to Psalm 45 to conclude today, Psalm 45 You'll see it in verse 8 where we read. We see that all his garments, well, they have a fragrance about them. All his garments smell in this fragrance of myrrh. You know, that was used in his birth and his death. Of aloes, also used in his death as 100 pounds of spices were brought by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus to prepare his body for burial, and cassia, used in the holy anointing oil for the priest to use as an offering up to the glory and praise of God. We see in his life there was a fragrance. Do you know there's a fragrance of him today? I'll tell you where you find it. 
You find it in those who believe that Christ, we are a fragrance of Christ to every person and in every place. To those who are being saved, it's a fragrance of salvation. To those who are lost, it's a fragrance as well, and it's a fragrance of judgment. And yet we enjoy that fragrance today, don't we? He all his garments smell of myrrh, aloes, and cassia. And it says in Psalm 45, verse 8, the last part of verse 8, out of the ivory palaces. What kind of place is this? Well, the Lord Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now I know that anything he has has to far exceed anything we know. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But he gives us little glimpses by his spirit, doesn't he? So that we can see with insight. If the Savior comes from the ivory palaces and he's gone to prepare mansions for us, it's just a matter of time. When he comes again for us, he came out of those palaces. He's coming back again as our heavenly bridegroom to take us home to the Father's house. We'll talk about that tomorrow, but let me just close with this. Out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. It was for the joy that was set before him that he came down and wore these garments, endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, there in glory. Talk about his gladness. Well, he said through the psalm, prophetically in Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. We have a wonderful Savior, a heavenly bridegroom. And as we've looked at him this morning and this afternoon, I don't know about you, but it makes me well with anticipation and excitement for the wedding day that's coming when our bridegroom comes back for us. Shall we close with a word of prayer? Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for the great, for the so great salvation that you have provided for us in him. A work that none other could do, but only him and he alone could accomplish what was impossible with man, but is possible with you. And we thank you, Lord, that while the Father made and devised a plan, you came in perfect obedience to the Father to do his will and his work, and you accomplished it all so that we could live with you forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came and sought a bride to bear your name, and we bear your name with reproach here on this world, but one day the reproach will be over and we'll be with you and like you forever. And we pray, Lord, that as we anticipate your coming, and if not, we anticipate meeting together to be more prepared as the bride for your coming back for us tomorrow. And we ask, Lord, that you will keep these thoughts so much on our hearts that we've heard today from your word through our brother Brian and 2 Timothy and through the things that we've looked at of our bridegroom in Psalm 45 so that our hearts will be overflowing 
bubbling up and running over with a good theme in the composition that we've made today. We pray these things and give you our thanks. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.